This is the UU Perspective with your host, Sharon Merrill. This is episode number 37 of the UU Perspective podcast, where you hear weekly interviews from Unitarians and Unitarian Universalists that are changing the world. Whether you're already a member or a seeker exploring the faith, there is something here for everyone. So as you sit, walk, jog, or drive, enjoy the conversations you're about to hear. All right, welcome everyone, and my guest today is Kenny Wiley. He is a UU World Senior Editor and Director of Faith Formation at Prairie Unitarian Universalist Church in Parker, Colorado. His writings have appeared in the Boston Globe, the Houston Chronicle, and Skid Magazine. Uh, One of the recent ones that certainly touched me was the one article he had, the one story he had, real life story, called Nights Can Be Tough. It's just an amazing story and an emotional story, and, I, and hopefully you've, you've caught that one and read it. Um, but again, he has many out there. And so we're going to have a great conversation today, and let's get to it. So here is Kenny. Well, my guest today is Kenny Wiley, and I've already given all of you a little bit of information about Kenny, but Kenny, I'd like you to take a moment and tell a little bit about yourself and your involvement in the UU community. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's awesome to be here with you, and or I guess virtually at least, and I work in uh, the Denver, Colorado area as the Director of Faith Formation of Prairie UU Church in Parker, which is southeast of Denver. And I also work as a senior editor for UU World Magazine, which is um, based in Boston. And I'm one of their, I guess you could say, Western correspondents. And uh, I am actually in Boston right now doing the interview. So so a lot of different UU hats I wear. And then also, and then lastly, very involved in the Black Lives of Unitarian Universalism project, which is a developing project where we talk about identity and formation and support of fellow Black Unitarian Universalists, both from within Black UU community and without. So I hope that's enough. I To start us, at least, I feel like all I do is UU, uh, if that. And so that's, that's nice, tiring, but nice. <laughs> and you're a lifelong UU. So, you know, inside of that, tell us a little bit about that and kind of how that's formed your identity and, how, and growing up that way? Sure thing. I am from uh, the north side of Houston, Texas, and um, grew up. My parents got married um, in at the First Unitarian Church of Austin, Texas, and moved to Houston uh, just before I was born. And they were uh, black UUs in Texas, which is statistically unusual, I suppose. And just, but they really liked the faith and raised me as well as my two younger sisters in it. And I suppose what I would say about being a lifelong UU is that, you know, growing up, I felt pretty, uh, pretty normal in the church. You know, it didn't feel like my race played that, that, that big of a role. And then being a black boy and now man. Um, but as I moved into teenage years, it became it became a, a big challenge in that realizing that this idea of colorblindness would not work, <laughs> that hoping people wouldn't notice or 
that they wouldn't um, put their negative portrayals of blackness onto me did not uh, take. And over time, and I'm happy to talk more about this if you like, uh, over time, moving from a space of, you know, just just another person to being really proud of my identity as a black man, as well as proud of my identity as a Unitarian Universalist. Okay. And what was your involvement like as a youth, um, kind of informing yourself as a, as a UU? I was very involved. I was in uh, young religious Unitarian Universalists at the district level in the Southwest district which is, I suppose, the southern region now. And we, I went to youth rallies as often as I possibly could. I was very involved in leadership, um, helped serve as youth co-director in 2006 when I was 18. And just, I was very, I mean, I, I didn't miss anything if I could help it. And I would leave, I played high school football and, you know, I would leave from games and, you know, just head to the next, as soon as I could get there um, on Friday night so I could be there for the rest of the weekend. So very committed as a youth, and that's, you know, carried forth into adulthood. Is there anyone who inspired you along along your way? Definitely. So there's a, a couple who they were advisors, uh, Susie Robinson and Kevin Morse, and uh, Susie's a white woman and Kevin is a black man, and Kevin, is, well, both of them in totally different ways, but Kevin as a black advisor, you know, he never insisted that I talk to him about racial identity, but made it clear that he would be there when I was ready. And those two have over and over again just been incredibly helpful for me as I've explored questions of faith and identity. And it helps that they, you know, they were six minutes away from my parents' house. So, that's also cool. And then some other youth advisors as well. But, you know, at that age, it's also about the older youth. So when you're coming in, um, those folks who really made it clear that they didn't want to just be clicky and be with their fellow juniors and seniors, but to really welcome in freshmen like me. And um, there's too many of those folks to name, but that spirit of hospitality, which is, I think, Unitarian Universalism at our best was instilled in me by those youth who were willing to like hang out with this 14-year-old, 15-year-old that they didn't know that well and um, made a big difference for me as, in addition to Susie and Kevin, who I mentioned. And at what point did you really have to take a look at your identity and delve into that? Yeah, so this is a, a story that I tell because I think it's illustrative of some of the struggles that Black UUs can have even as they you know, feel a part of the faith in a larger sense. And there's a, a guy my age named Razik Brown. And Razik and I, Razik's a fellow black man. And when we were teenagers, we felt a lot of pressure to not be friends because, frankly, you know, groups of youth of color gathering is in itself an act that can be, make people really uncomfortable, that white folks, especially white UUs, are really used to being in the majority and anything that feels different from that can really threaten people, even if they're not aware that they feel threatened. And so Razik and I separately, because we, we avoided being friends as long as we could. And, but, but eventually, and he had this revel, re, um, realization first, but 
you know, eventually he uh, and then I realized that we needed each other in a way that that because we had shared experience and it turned out actually similar personalities in some ways, or I guess you could say complementary personalities, that we went from four, you know, almost four full years of not, you know, we knew each other from childhood, but we weren't close. And then all of a sudden we realized we needed each other and um, needed that friendship with a fellow black person and are, have been almost inseparably close since then. And that, that shift, you know, still being close with almost all of my close friends from, from youth group days, but also uh, adding that in and friends with other, becoming friends with other youth and now young adults of color has really been a saving grace for me because you can talk about things that maybe you have to explain to someone else but they just they just get you and that is and you can laugh about things that happen and and it's just it's an incredibly healing friendship and a lot of those friendships are healing as well and there's actually uh an article is it in the fall 2015 fall 2015 yes i talk about Razik. yes that was uh, uh, that was a very emotional article. I read that and it was like, oh my gosh, it's just unbelievable. And um, if any of you haven't read that yet, just take take a look at that. Uh, it's just amazing. And and my question to that would be, was anything ever resolved with that, with the police and with Razik? Did he ever get any more completion around that? Right. Yeah. The piece is nights can be tough and my fellow UU World editors would want me to put in the plug of UUWorld.org to find our writing, but the piece is called Nights Can Be Tough, and my friend Razik uh, being harassed by police at his, at his workplace in Fort Worth, Texas in late March, and predictably, you know, I went with him to the police station to file a uh, complaint, and predictably, he's not heard anything. I mean, and that's, you know, that's, uh, you know, they said, we'll be in touch, and I remember leaving, and I said, no, I doubt they will. And they, because when you go to the police to report something the police did, it's just not likely that you're going to see much done about it. Um, especially because they said, oh, we didn't arrest you, even though he was handcuffed. They said, we detained you. I was like, well, okay. So, you know, and, and when something like that happens, it's hard to do, you know, what there was this interesting way in which some folks in his life were you know, supportive to the point of almost feeling like talking to him like he was six or something. And then other folks, you know, didn't want to engage with the discomfort of that being such a routine experience for some black folks and brown folks in this country. And really what he needed was for someone to just listen and then crack jokes about it, but in a way that didn't feel like avoiding the painful truth, but just kind of almost transcending the truth of that, uh, that horror that our lives in some ways are not, are not fully our own, that we can be, you know, we can be college graduates and um, work in a white faith and have white people think we're great or whatever, but, you know, walk around with a sign that says that, and all of a sudden, you know, you can be out of nowhere um, in some really serious danger. You know, he was sleeping in his workplace, and, and I've got lots of friends of color, black folks, Latina folks, Native folks who... Um, are seen as dangerous merely for existing. And, and it's, it's horrifying. And honestly, when I gather with fellow youth and young adults of color, 
you know, there's so much laughter. And this is why um, his, Razik's dad and my mom wanted us to be friends so much is understanding the healing nature of, of laughter with, with folks who share your experiences. Yeah, oh, for sure. So as you've grown and developed, how in sight of your work now, how has your faith informed your work? Yeah, so when I um, moved to Denver in the fall of 2013, I moved and got a job as a director of faith formation where I work now at Prairie UU. And, you know, my intention was to just kind of uh, be a mid-20-something and and work and make friends. And when, um, you know, first when the Trayvon Martin uh, decision about from George Zimmerman being found not guilty to then, you know, a little over a year later to have um, to have Mike Brown lay in the street in Ferguson, Missouri for four and a half hours that they just left him bleeding there. Um, I found myself really moved to act and got involved on social media and asking folks, is there going to be a, a vigil in Denver? Is there going to be a march? And, you know, realizing finally that I should just plan one and not being, not being a professional organizer, not being really involved in the racial justice movement, you know, I kept waiting for the so-called real activists to show up. And what I and other folks who have similar stories have realized is, is that saying, right, we are the ones we've been waiting for. And realizing that um, in a different way, we are real activists. We are, and I am in a Black Lives Matter chapter uh, in Denver, helped start one. And it's been an incredible moment and and movement i think where we are now and how my faith how my faith informs that is that belief uh, as sophia leon faz said you know each night a child is born is a holy night and that if the, that saying that the night that mike brown was born was a holy night and the night that trayvon martin and the night that rakia boyd and the night that sandra bland that the night those folks were born was a holy night and whatever slander you can use against them and, and say they did this wrong and they did that wrong, their lives are holy. And that's why I've been in the streets protesting. That's why I've, you know, challenged police tactics. And that's why I do this work is as a person of faith. And for me, you know, growing up UU, hearing that, hearing that reading from Sophia Lyon Foz, the, you know, the famous religious educator every Christmas Eve, um, that really sunk in that that each night a child is born is a holy night, and that we should act as though that is true, whatever it is that a person may have done or not done. So that's why I'm that's why I'm out there. Wow, well, and it, it's a real tribute to the fact that if you don't think you have that activist in you, it's like you created that for yourself. You brought it out of you. We're thinking it wasn't there originally, you know, how do I organize? How am I a leader in that? But it just, it worked. It, it forced you into that and it exists for you now. It does. And there's a song um, that we sing in, in Denver and folks have been singing it for, for decades now, Eyes on the Prize. And that line, the one thing we did right was the day we started to fight. And there's, you know, there, um, the UU minister uh, and fellow 
um, young adult of color, Elizabeth Wynn, you know, she says that the only choice is between an imperfect movement and no movement, that we're going to do, we're going to mess up, we're going to, there's always more to learn. But that idea that, um, that the one thing we did right is the day we started to fight, that by, by saying something, by coming forward and saying this is wrong and things need to change, it really feels like living out my faith as a Unitarian Universalist. And what I've done in the 13, 14 months since joining this movement is encourage other folks in their own ways to do the same. And they don't have to, you know, it's cool if you want to come to a protest. They don't have to protest, but to disrupt, to, to live out that, that Sophia Lyon Fawes idea of each night, a child is born as a holy night, to live that out in whatever way makes the most sense for each person. What would be a suggestion you would give someone who is, you know, thinking, oh, I, I, I can't do that. I, you know, I'm not the person who's an activist. How would you say, take this first step? What would, what would that be? Yeah, this, this is a, something I talk about a lot because every time we have an action in Denver, I or whoever's leading the, the rally or the forum asks who, for whom is this the first uh, protest or action you've ever been to? And almost every time, a third of the hands go up. And so each time, somebody who has been following the news, and, and they, you know, they could be 20, they could be 40, they could be 70, and you know, they say, finally, I feel moved um, to, to act. And what I tell people is, there's so many different ways. The key is disruption, to disrupt the sort of, you know, when, when patriarchy goes unchecked and we just accept the sexist things men say or do, you know, when you challenge that, however imperfectly, um, in, and you can challenge it in the way of interpersonal communication, you can challenge it in the way of questioning hiring practices in the workplace. Um, if you're a supervisor or a boss, you can... There's so many different ways that you can come forward and say things need to change. The important thing, um, a really good example, someone I work with, Bianca Williams in Denver, is that when someone, t- when someone tells her a joke that's racist or sexist, she doesn't, you know, she's a, she's a professor, and, but she doesn't like lug out all of these deep theories. She just says, I don't understand that. Can you explain it to me? And... I just, that is, it's something that we've kind of taken from her and used ourselves because when you ask people to reflect back what they just said, almost always they have to hear themselves say that. They have to listen to themselves. And I think change happens one person at a time that we can't all influence policy. We can't all, but what's needed is an uprising of folks who, who proclaim that Black Lives Matter, proclaim that women matter, proclaim all these different things. And it starts with disrupting that sort of unchecked, because we're taught in our society to just kind of let stuff go and to, you know, not be so sensitive, quote unquote. And I think when we challenge those notions, whether it's at the dinner table, whether it's, you know, out and about when we're with our friends, it gets folks thinking. And when folks start engaging with the realities of the society in which we live, I think that's how change happens is because then they start demanding more of their people in their circle, and it really takes off. I mean, and that's how I think the civil rights movement was about laws. 
Um, but it was also about people. People had to change. People had to to hear themselves say these things and really look in the mirror. And that requires, that's a, a whole bunch of small interactions that together create something big. Mm, that's brilliant. I love it. I, I'm going to use that next time <laughs> I hear something because right. I get stuck too. I, I'll, I'll just say nothing because I don't yeah. know what to do with that moment. Right. So, oh, that's great. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, well, it's uh, Bianca Williams. She's really helped us. a lot of us see that it's, it's okay to respond to something that makes you feel uncomfortable, even by just saying, that made me feel uncomfortable. Um, and, it, and it sort of shifts the narrative in a way that's incredibly helpful. Wow, that's great. All right. So is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to speak about? Well, I, you know, I'm really passionate about racial justice. I'm really passionate about feminism. Something else that I that I spend a lot of time talking with folks on is um, mental illness stigma. And as someone who I've been very open on Facebook, um, and I love I love getting Facebook friend requests from UUs, whether we've met in person or not. And I talk a lot about mental illness stigma, and I I have depression. And you know, I think I, I gave a sermon last Sunday in which I talked about the idea that um, my mom instilled in me when she taught me how to play chess, which is, um, you know, when I was learning how I was really afraid to use my queen because I kept hearing the queen is the most powerful piece. And if you lose it, it's really hard to win. But what I took that was like, I should protect the queen and never use it. And of course, if you don't use your queen, you can't win. So either way you lose, right? So what my mom helped me learn over time is that is to use your queen, to do so selectively and helpfully. And for me, my realizing that my intimate familiarity with, with despair, with sadness, that that is actually really can really help folks. Because what I want, what I want folks to see is that, you know, Depression is really hard, and it's really frustrating, and other mental illnesses, same thing. But our capacity for understanding can be so great as well. Our capacity for empathy, um, our capacity for caring for fellow human beings. And that's something else that I really care deeply about because it makes me, it makes me very sad when I hear of folks hiding um, you know, and thinking that no one else feels this way. And that's the power of depression. But a lot of us struggle. And when we, you know, especially in faith community and religious settings, whether a, a young adult group or, you know, a larger congregation, um, when we share something of ourselves, when we, uh, when we don't feel so alone, I think great things can happen and caring spaces can really be formed. Mm-hmm. That's great. And can you uh, also share with us any tidbits or anything inside of uh, working in UU world? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) what's that like, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, So I, I love working for UU world because I get to talk to UUs from all over about what matters to them. And I guess, I guess what I've learned most is, that there's no one way to do Unitarian Universalism. I mean, that's something I think intellectually we know because many of us have different beliefs, but 
when you talk to folks for stories and things like that, you just really get the sense that this faith can do so many different things for us. Um, what's, but what's become clear is there are ways to do Unitarian Universalism badly. Um, and, and I think the biggest way that we can do Unitarianism badly is to talk about, you know, that you can believe whatever you want, to talk about that, to make it so that it's just kind of like this thing we do on Sunday mornings or whenever, but it doesn't really become part of our lives. And I get to talk to yous all over the country who, some of whom never go to church on Sunday morning and yet are the most UU people I've ever met because of how they are being in the world, how they're caring for other people. And it's just, it's a cool, it's a cool job. I love it. I love talking to folks. Yeah, that's kind of, kind of, we're in the same boat there because I too get to experience many mm-hmm. different UUs. So mm-hmm. I know what you're saying there, being able to connect with so many people like that. Yeah, it's an amazing, I feel so lucky that I got the job. And, and the other thing I would just add really quickly is that Unitarian Universalists are funnier than we get credit for. That's the other thing I would say is I, I talk to a lot of absolutely hilarious people who have found a way, and sometimes through struggle, found ways to have humor infuse their lives and the lives of people around them. So don't let people tell you that you use them, you use are not funny because quite the contrary. <laughs> right. Okay. So can you give us a, a favorite quote that inspires you and tell us why? Yeah. Well, you know, I've, I've mentioned a few of them throughout this. Sophia Lyon-Fawes, uh, Each Night a Child is Born, Elizabeth Wynn, the only choices between an imperfect movement and no movement. And what I've kind of fusing some of the ideas together that I've been thinking about as an activist, you know, Ella Baker said that strong people don't need strong leaders. And, um, you know, her as a civil rights activist in the 40s, 50s, 60s, into the 70s, Ella Baker, a black woman who believed in building up the people and that they didn't need to follow because they could be their own leaders. And I think that quote makes me think about that we all have a role to play. Um, We may never be on TV. We may never be interviewed on the news, but we still can influence the five people with whom we're close. We can influence, you know, the 12 people we serve on a committee with. And um, we can be our own leaders as we you know, strive for justice in these various forms and live out our faith. So that's kind of, that's what I've been thinking about a lot, about strong, strong people. That's my goal is, is to help build strong people of faith. All right. I'm curious. I just thought of this, Kenny. Can you tell me where you see yourself in five to 10 years? <laughs> Gosh. Uh, um, well, if you mean physically where, you know, I think, I'm either going to stay in Denver or move to the south and east, uh, south and east of Denver, you know, somewhere like Memphis. And the, I, a lot of it is I just, I miss culturally, I miss being down there. Um, and then as far as career, I, I love being in Unitarian Universalism. I want to keep writing. I want to keep speaking. I want to keep sharing. I want to keep listening. Um, and so being a religious professional of some sort who gets to go around and talk to different folks about, about not just racial justice, but about mental health, talking about uh, feminism, talking about 
all sorts of things and just getting to share ideas and listen to ideas with people. That's what I hope I'm doing. And I hope that I can then um, come home from all over the country, come home to somewhere in the South, in the South and watch some college football and, you know, eat some, eat some Southern food because fried okra is everything in my life. (laughs) All right. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. And then now the last question I have that I ask everyone and I'll have you answer that, is how is Unitarian Universalism as a religious denomination uniquely positioned to serve and impact society? Well, to me, what it, what it comes down to is that we say revolutionary things every Sunday. Um, when, we, when you look at the, princi- the first principle, to believe that every person has inherent worth and dignity and to believe that all of us are connected that is a revolutionary statement. And I think we are uniquely positioned because when we live up to that statement, and there are UUs and there are UU communities who already are, but when more of us decide that we are going to actually do that and actually live that, when we can engage the, the person who makes us uncomfortable and engage the person who challenges us, I just, I see so much potential for us to welcome in not just, you know, upper middle class white folks who like NPR and coffee and stuff, but also lots of other people who have inherent worth and dignity. And when we do that, I'm just, I'm convinced that this faith can be a big deal and a big force in our society and beyond. All right. Well said. Excellent. Well, thank you, Kenny, so much. Yeah, this was cool. Yeah, thanks for being with us um, and everything that you've shared. A lot of great gems to to pull from that. So, well, I'm gonna have to. I hope I see you at GA because I you oh, know, yeah. Ohio is. I actually love it because they love their college football, and <laughs> uh, you know, so the Buckeyes are everything. I understand. So That's right. That's there. right. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. And um, thanks for having me. You bet. Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening and check out the show notes at uuperspective.com, our website. And if you have any comments, please leave them there on the episode page. And again, you can also leave a voicemail on SpeakPipe. You'll see it on the right hand side, a little tab. Just check that. And uh, you can actually do that on an app on your phone. So until next time, have a great week. We'll see you then. Thank you.